This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 102, July the 30th, 1985. Since my student days a good many years ago, I've been interested off and on in the Irish Church. When I say the Irish Church, I mean the early church in Ireland, the Irish Catholic Church, which was separate from Rome, had friendly relations with Rome, but maintained its own existence. I am tentatively uh, working on a, a paper, an article for a magazine on the whole subject of church government and hence my interest in this subject. The Irish Church was quite a remarkable church. A great deal of the missionary work throughout Africa was a product of Irish monks. An interesting fact about Christianity in Ireland is that I believe it is the only country into which Christianity went where there was not a single martyr for the faith. Partly this may have been due to the fact that Ireland in those days, while divided up into a number of small kingdoms, had no cities and did not even have villages. Uh, life was organized in terms of clan loyalties, and hence, while there might be disfavor shown towards someone who became a convert, there was not sufficient organization to make possible uh, systematic persecution and martyrdom. However, that's not the critical point. Before we get to the essence of what the Irish Church did, apart from its remarkable missionary work. Let's stand back a moment and survey the whole subject of church government. Christendom is usually divided between the Eastern churches and the Western churches, and this division has merit to it. The Eastern churches were predominantly Caesaropapist, that is, they were governed in the final analysis by the state. This was not necessarily a matter of their choosing to do so, and in fact in Russia there was rebellion against this, in particular the old believers. But the churches in the East were never able to gain an independence and thus were Caesaropapist, governed by the state, most notably Byzantium, although after that the various civil governments that developed continued the pattern. The Western or Latin churches were governed by themselves although they had to fight and still are waging a battle against state control. Now, the division in the form of church government historically has been Episcopal, government by bishops, Presbyterian, government by presbyters, that is, the clergy and the lay presbyters, 
and third, congregational, in which the local church governs. There have been variations on this. For example, the Episcopal Church in the United States has vestrymen. This it picked up as a result of Presbyterian influences. The Roman Catholic Church, for most of its history, had lay cardinals so that it had a kind of Presbyterianism at the top. Unfortunately, now when transportation is better and lay cardinals could exercise more power, it is no longer the practice. In the uh, Church of Armenia, the Catholicos, as well as the presiding bishop, as well as the other bishops, were named by a council made up exclusively of laymen so that the laymen govern the church. Much more could be said about the interpenetration of these three systems, Episcopal, Presbyterian, and Congregational. However, what we have to say is that East and West, the emphasis has been on the form of government to a very great degree. And in this, the clergy usually tend to predominate, whether for good or bad, whether it's a Baptist or Congregational Church or Presbyterian or Episcopal, the clergy dominate. This has happened in uh, Roman Catholicism, in uh, Presbyterianism and in Congregational and Baptist churches. For one thing, even where there is lay representation, the clergy tend to make so much business, church business, that meetings are called endlessly and only the retired laymen can afford to attend them. So, control passes into the hands of the clergy. And there is a great deal of emphasis on the importance of position, on the forms of government. We see that in the Bible, too. For example, has it ever struck you as interesting that a deputation sent from Jerusalem by the high priest and his associates came to call on John the Baptist. They asked him, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? No such deputation called on Jesus. Why not? Well, there was an obvious fact which you may have missed. John the Baptist was the son of a priest, Zechariah's a very important priest, I might add. John, therefore, had status. And it was easy for them to ask him, is it possible that you are the Christ? Or Elijah? Or the great prophet predicted by Moses? With Jesus, 
there was only hostility. Not that they were uh, friendly to John, but they were ready to ask the question. They were ready to consider the possibility. Now, I submit that uh, temperament prevails in all forms of church government, or virtually all forms. I'm not saying it is necessarily bad or always bad or necessarily good. I'm just saying that's a fact. Only twice to any considerable extent has there been a break with this pattern. One was the Irish church. Now I said it was an Irish Catholic church. It was very respectful of the Pope, but by and large paid no attention to him. As a matter of fact, in later centuries, Rome had an archbishop in Dublin, to which most Irish paid no attention, and the Irish church had its own archbishop in answer to Rome at Armagh. However, although the Irish church had bishops, they paid very little attention to them. The Irish bishops had very little to do except ordination and one or two other little things of that sort. So that apart from their part in ceremonies, they did next to nothing. The person who had the authority in the Irish church was the abbot. However, even here, his authority was not of a, a, a necessary or automatic sort. His authority depended, in a sense, upon his spiritual or charismatic power. Moreover, and at this point, we can criticize the Irish church. They were fanatical on the business of a radical equality in the clergy and of the clergy with the laity. It was strictly forbidden for any abbot or bishop to ride a horse. That was for lords and no churchman should put on airs. In fact, even a donkey was uh, a little much. He should take his staff and walk. He should not have anything more than anyone else or as the poorest of the parish. Now we can see the motive behind this, but all the same it was not scriptural because Paul makes it clear that they that labor worthily in the Lord's ministry, are worthy of double honor. And the Greek word translated as honor means pay. Worthy of double pay. It's a principle I believe in, by the way, although I don't expect to get it in my lifetime. Well, at any rate, the Irish church at that point insisted on a radical equality. This was one of the reasons why they kept their distance from other churches. 
At the same time, this was not the critical point. What mattered in the Irish church was the character of the man. He might be an abbot with very little influence, but he might also be an abbot or a monk or a pastor with a phenomenal influence, whom people revered far and wide, and it was in terms of his faith and the life of faith he lived. This is why we have to say the Irish church, in a sense, was charismatic. Only in the current charismatic movement, outside the traditional ranks, such as represented by Pat Robertson, where there's a more centralized organization, in many of the charismatic churches, the covenant churches and the like, we see something of the Irish pattern. It is the emphasis on action, the readiness to pick up and move to accomplish a work, uh, the readiness to pull up roots and go elsewhere and start a new monastery or a new church with some of the members of the congregation of the old. At the same time, the form of government is not despised. However, it is given a place secondary to the vitality of faith. I think we have a great deal to learn from the Irish church. It's a pity it is not studied as much as it should be. The devotion, the dedication, of the Irish monks to whatever they did was phenomenal. Uh, to give one little example as illustrative of this, the Book of Kells, a book, illuminated manuscript, which is regarded as the classic of Irish monastic work, represents something remarkable the number of brush strokes to a single square inch would sometimes go into the thousands. The patience, the dedication, the love that was put into everything they did was not out of a sense of duty, but out of a love. The more difficult something was, the more the Irish monks loved it. This marked the difference between Irish monasticism and continental monasticism. On the continent, the monks there had to have very strict rules that governed every uh, bit of their behavior. These strict rules would last one generation and then they would be uh, a dead letter. Again and again, continental monasticism had to be reformed 
and would slide back into the same pattern. And one of the problems in continental monasticism was that very strict rules were established, rules which stifled the spirit rather than furthering it. And at the same time, because the papacy controlled these monastic orders, fearful of disorders, and sometimes very rightfully so. It led to a stifling of the spirit, so that great as the work of the continental monastic orders was, it usually lasted a generation and then would settle back into a pattern of complacency, and instead of the works being done by the monks, they were hiring peasants to do it. By the time of the French Revolution, the monks in France, for example, dressed like gentlemen and lords. They did next to nothing except occasionally attending services that was required of monks. They were gentlemen. And if you met them at Versailles or elsewhere, you would scarcely know they were monks and nuns. It only had become a facade. Well, so much for the Irish Church. I do believe it merits a great deal of study. I do believe that most churches have become over-organized, and as a result, they have failed. They have not realized their full potential. This leads me to consider a book which, without intending to uh, deal with the subject that I've just discussed, is very, very relevant to it. It is by Paul Johnson, who wrote Modern Times. It is his A History of Christianity. A rather sizable work, but a brilliant one. First of all, there are many things on which Johnson can be criticized. For example, he believes that there was such a thing as a dark age, and historians have long since stopped talking about the dark ages because no such thing existed. Johnson, whose reading is very wide, somehow retains that perspective. He is also very much a Pelagian. Pelagius was a monk who was uh, a believer in the natural goodness of man, a Rousseau centuries before Rousseau. Next time, I think I shall discuss Pelagius because... He is important for us to know something about because virtually all churches today are heavily infiltrated by Pelagianism. However, given this fact, plus the fact that Paul Johnson's liberalism 
is still with him as he writes this book, which was uh, published first in 1976, and the copy I have was republished 1979 by Athenaeum in New York. I believe it is still in print. Uh, Johnson, by the way, is a um, liberal English Roman Catholic. Some of the liberal Catholics have written some exceptionally good histories, which can also be at times very aggravating ones. <laughs> what Johnson does in this book, and before I proceed, let me say he is, as a Pelagian, militantly anti-Augustinian. <laughs> Almost every bad thing in the history of the church <laughs> he traces to St. Augustine, whether it is in uh, Catholicism or Protestantism. Augustine gets clobbered at every turn. Well, this sounds like enough to uh, give you ground for dismissing the book, but it is a brilliant work a remarkably brilliant work. One of the things that uh, he has to say throughout the book, which ties in with the matter of the Irish Church, is that very early Catholicism became mechanical Christianity. That uh, Grace was tied to mechanical forms rather than being something of the Spirit. And in terms of this, he has a brilliant critique of both Catholicism and Protestantism. It is well worth reading. In the process, he writes with a great deal of insight Uh, on many subjects. Uh, he also is uh, fully aware of the need for a stronger doctrine of the Holy Spirit. He quotes, for example, Pope Gregory I. Uh, Holy Church worketh daily now in the Spirit whatsoever the, the apostles then wrought in the body. And indeed, those miracles are the greater for being spiritual, all the greater as uplifting, not the bodies, but the souls of men, unquote. And he cites Bede, and I quote, Man, says Bede, had originally exercised dominion over his environment, but had lost it through the first sin. But it was possible for individuals to recover it by showing exceptional virtue." Unquote. Then he has some uh, very important things to say on emperor worship and papal worship in imitation of it on the king as an ecclesiastic, and on Thomas a Becket, of whom he is 
uh, highly critical uh, without being in favor of uh, state control. He has some uh, excellent comments on Lutheranism. He is unsparing in his criticism of churches Catholic and Protestant in the battle against Nazism. Let me add there, the Catholic laity had more sense than the clergy and were the ones who did not, by and large, vote for Hitler. But the clergy were bent on pleasing Hitler at every turn. He has a great deal to say of interest on the development of Protestantism, Lutheranism especially, very little on uh, Calvinism. Very interesting quotation that he has from Whitfield concerning Wesley because the two were good friends. And Whitfield accused Wesley of the heresy of universalism and told him, quote, your God is my devil, unquote. It is an interesting statement, and it is pertinent to what we've been discussing because Wesley held Pelagius to be a great saint and could not see why he had been called a heretic. Then he has an interesting statement, too, which uh, tells us a great deal about modernism. One of the pioneers in the modernist movement in England, the Reverend Charles Kingsley, who also wrote novels like Westward Ho, wrote of evolution, I quote, Men find that now they have got rid of an interfering God, unquote. The God of Augustine and of Calvin, the God of Scripture, is not to the taste of such men. This is a remarkable work and uh, well worth reading. He calls attention to the fact that uh, there was more nationalism in the earlier centuries, in the Middle Ages, than uh, many scholars are ready to acknowledge. Thus, he says around the time of the uh, Avignon papacy, it was commonplace to say, and I quote, the Pope is French, but Jesus Christ is English, unquote. His account of the uh, Crusades is very good. Uh, of the decline that set in and the predicted dissolution of the medieval church, of monastic uh, dissolutions. He is uh, 
particularly interesting on Henry VIII and the uh, seizure of the church by Henry VIII. He points out that monastic dissolutions were being carried out all over Europe, and uh, there was nothing remarkable about that. What Henry did, Catholic monarchs were doing. The thing that set him apart was that he broke with Rome. He also calls attention to the fact that uh, when we look carefully at the reports on the monasteries, what we find is not much of a religious uh, picture, but, as he says, a complicated morass of personal feuds and grudges, jealousies, rivalries of jurisdiction, provincial contests, and sheer bloody-mindedness. And then he goes on to say, uh, equally though, the end of clerical celibacy was a lure successfully dangled by the reformers before many priests, a majority of the younger ones. Some remained Romanists because they did not want to be forced to marry their concubines, unquote. He has some quotations from some of these priests, which I'd hardly dare uh, cite. He uh, generally uh, gives us a brilliant account of the Enlightenment and its influence on secret societies as a third force, and he's not entirely unfavorable to them, on the control of the church by the state, on pietism and how it led to a degree to Illuminism, and so on. It's an excellent work, so that uh, it would be possible to spend a few days going over some of the remarkable points in it. Well, now on to another book, just very briefly, this Kirsty McLeod, Drums and Trumpets, a study of the House of Stuart, a brief work published in 77 and now out of print. I won't go into much of what it has to say, but a few points are of interest, because what the author points out is that uh, England did not have anything like the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution, because it had its upheaval in the 17th century with Cromwell. And the results were substantially good. And it gave to the country an end to the uh, absolute monarchy that they rebelled against and laid the foundations for freedom and the possibility of development and growth. An interesting uh, little point is this, because English health declined from the medieval era to the end of the 18th century. 
and the result was they became a nation of tea drinkers. This is what the author says. Speaking of uh, things in the, the country life in the era of the Stuarts, I quote, at all in the winter, the farmer's wife made do with game or salted beef or fish uh, when meat was uh, prohibited during Lent. At all other times of the year, meat was so plentiful that foreigners were amazed to see the English discard the feet and entrails of the beasts they killed. Extra nourishment was to be had from frumenty, a dish of wheat boiled in milk and seasoned with sugar and cinnamon. The small beer brewed at home by, or by country innkeepers was high in calories and rich in calcium, vitamins, and sugar. In the next century, when the English became a nation of tea instead of beer drinkers, the effect on their health was noticeably detrimental." Unquote. The section on Queen Anne is quite interesting. She was the last sovereign of the House of Stuart, very much unlike the rest of her family. She was plump, plain, and simple. She took after her mother's family, the Hydes. Her husband was uh, also fat and drunken, Prince George of Denmark. And in 20 years in England, never mastered English. Most of the time he was not sober enough to learn anything. He was at least faithful. She was unable to provide an heir to the throne, which is why George I, a relative, came to the throne. All but one of her seventeen children miscarried, were stillborn, or died, and the one who survived, the young Duke of Gloucester, died as a child. She was a kindly, well-meaning, not very bright woman who became so fat that a special hoist was built to carry her up the stairs in the palace. And when she died, her coffin, specially built for her, was also almost square. She was, however, a very kindly, pathetic, and well-meaning person. Well, now on to something else that uh, I picked up the other day, used. It's out of print, been out of print for a long time. And uh, it was first published in 1925. The author is Frederick C. Cruz, C-R-E-W-S, The Pooh Perplex, Pooh, P-O-O-H, A Freshman Casebook. You're all familiar, perhaps, or hopefully perhaps not, with Winnie the Pooh. Uh, the Winnie the Pooh's books I found totally stupid. Don't write to me telling me that they are marvelous. I've had letters like that before when I once referred to Winnie the Pooh disrespectfully. Well, in this book, Frederick C. Cruz, 
does it take off on scholarship? There are all too many scholars who are bent on producing works that prove how brilliant they are and how they can see things nobody else can. We have this in the field of biblical scholarship, and it's very, very prevalent. And people see all kinds of strange symbolic meanings in Scripture, and you have symbolic theology. Well, Frederick C. Cruz in the Pooh Perplex writes a spoof in which a series of supposed scholars, and he writes every section, argue about the underlying meaning of Winnie the Pooh, the secret hidden meaning, a la Freud. Uh, and this one, Poisoned Paradise, The Underside of Pooh, by Myron Masterson, begins. Before going further, I would like to thank all the people who have made this article possible. Karl Marx, St. John of the Cross, Friedrich Nietzsche, Sacco and Vanzetti, Sigmund Freud, and C. C. Jung. Some finicky experts have said that there exist differences of opinion among these thinkers. The point, however, is that each of them has helped to shape my literary and moral consciousness, and that, frankly, is enough for me. If the reader is surprised by the eclecticism with which I draw inspiration from a freewheeling, broad-minded range of sources, that is his problem and not mine. Perhaps one more private note would not be out of place in this otherwise impersonal analysis. I first discovered the real meaning of Winnie the Pooh when I was reading selections from when we were very young to my twelve children. Suddenly my youngest son, Charlie, stopped me and asked to hear those lines from the mirror again. And there I saw a white swan make another white swan in the lake. How did they let that one get through, lisped Trudy. And little Stephen said, That's nothing. Read that wild couplet from Vespers. With mingled misgivings and interest, I allowed Billy and Jane to fumble their tiny fingers through the pages until they came upon these lines, which were recited in gleeful unison. God bless Mummy, I know that's right. Wasn't it fun in the bath tonight? Wisdom from the Mouth of Babes, a rapid check of the other poems in the volume, and then a similar run-through of Now We Are Six, convinced me that all Milne's verse was more or less equally salacious. Well, then he goes through to show how all these things are sexual symbols, and that Winnie the Pooh is really a very dirty book. And we had better face up to the question, should we or should we not forbid such literature to children? Well, then the next essay by C.J.L. Culpepper, O Felix Culpa, the Sacramental Meaning of Winnie the Pooh. So here you have the sacramental meaning of Winnie the Pooh, how it is really a very profound uh, work of Christian humanism. And uh, 
So he goes on to say later, after establishing this point, by interpreting the symbols, the words, developing their symbolic meaning, an exercise in symbolic theology. This simple example will suffice to orient us to the iconographical technique which is everywhere at work in the pages of Pooh. Let us proceed to a far weightier matter, one that must be approached in a spirit of combined reverence and determination. Who is the Savior in this book? And so on and so forth to determine what Pooh and Christopher Robin and all the others represent. Well, of course, then you have Simon Lazarus with an essay, another book to cross off your list, which uh, gives us a very different reading. Uh, quoting again, The trouble with Winnie the Pooh is that it constitutes a vast betrayal of life. This is simply put, and if I were merely addressing the loyal old thumbscrew group, I would end my critique here. Unfortunately, there are enemies as well as friends among my readers, and they need to be reminded what the absolute canon of taste consists of. Literature must reflect, conform to, and serve the interests of life. That is the point in a nutshell. That is to say, it must be about life. It must be lifelike and it must help to smash the establishment. Perfectly simple, perfectly objective tools of judgment, yet very few persons have attempted to wield them, much less with the efficiency and devastation you will see below. A vast betrayal of life, then. It is only proper to say that everything Milne wrote from his syrupy panegyric on the changing of guard at Buckingham Palace onwards is a vast betrayal of life. For minds with mature interests, however, and by mature interests I assure you I don't mean those of Clive Bell, Norman Douglas, and Lord Wendell Dovetail. There must be a special repugnancy in Winnie the Pooh and the house at Pooh Corner, and so on and so forth, developing a Marxist critique of Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh is for him establishment literature in order to work against life with the children. Then Dr. Carl Aunshang, M.D., has an essay, A.A. A. Milne's Honey Balloon Pit Gun Tail Bathtub Complex, which is uh, Freudian to the nth degree. Just a sampling of it having himself hallucinated into the personages of castrating images, young Milne worries about the over-efficiency of his organ and its intimidation uh, of the father. He wants the father, uh, him to watch bathing, ostensibly for the purpose to reassure him that he, A. A. Milne, is childlike. And then he goes on with... Uh, the development of the point that uh, the castration complex, a malicious scoptophilia, and so on. The uh, book manifests the pregenital organization of the libido and uh, specifically the anal sadistic 
phase, and so on. Recalling the slang meaning of poo, we see the suckling A. A. Milne a further problem had, as yet unresolved, of confusing anal theories of childhood with his memory of the Primocene. Well, it's a clever takeoff and a delight to read because this is the kind of scholarship you have with literature and with the Bible. It is symbolic theology applied to Winnie the Pooh. Now on to another point in a book by J. Robert Nash, The Innovators. Just one little item, because it indicates something which in some circles was thought was very witty and funny. Uh, about Dorothy Parker and uh, Robert Benchley. Mrs. Parker and Benchley, uh, let's see, ah, here. Um, Benchley once set fire to Teddy Roosevelt, Jr. on Fifth Avenue when the ex-president's son complained of the chill in the air. That was the insane kind of thing that marked some of these characters back in the 20s. Now to another old book that I just read now, Whitaker Chambers' Cold Friday. This uh, paragraph from a letter. The businessman despises the mind because it constantly threatens to complicate or subvert a few functions of the intelligence which are all he has use for. But he also fears the mind, for the mind is the host of the spirit. His functionalism is anti-spirit. He would like to liquidate it in the interest of efficiency, but it always eludes him, so he does the next best thing. He derides it. Now the spirit is taking vengeance. Oswald Spengler says that if businessmen did read books, they would not be doers. I think he has a case. The businessman's own instincts are right. The mistake is to ask them to be what they cannot be, and so on and so forth. I think that is garbage. And Whitaker Chambers was capable of a great deal of garbage. I say it is garbage because businessmen have always been intellectual leaders in their own spheres. And in most of history have been capable of a great deal of intellectual acumen. They have been patrons of the arts and of literature. What we have today is a product of the destruction of the unity of life. Today the artist feels that there is something demeaning in being practical. And as a result, he cultivates an image which is one of stupidity. Every area specializes in an absurd way. It withdraws itself from life. So that to know something practical about other spheres is somehow out of place. This is a product of the de-Christianization of our culture. Because Christianity has a universality, a Catholicity to it, which unites life 
It does not say that you are to divorce yourself from everything else and stay in your own corner. Well, now on to another matter, a question that uh, was asked me by some few and uh, also by others in my travels. And I didn't have an answer, and perhaps I have one now. I referred in an easy chair of two, three months ago to the inflation rate today in various countries and to the fact that uh, the two worst were Bolivia and then Israel. But although Bolivia's inflation rate is the greatest, economists have said inflation is at its worst in Israel. The reason being that Israel's rate is disguised by American aid, American loans, the continuing reparations paid by West Germany, and a number of other factors, so that the real inflation rate in Israel would be far worse than in Bolivia. Why Israel? Why are the Israelis so bad at managing their economy? Well, that question puzzled me how to answer it. I think now I have an answer to it. Israel, which does not have a constitution, I believe, to this day, from the beginning has been a pilot project of intellectuals. Zionism was the work of Jewish intellectuals, the men who settled it began a country as a remarkable experiment in what intellectuals starting a country from scratch could do. A great deal of the uh, pro-Israeli feeling the world over was to a considerable measure in the media governed by this fact. Here were philosopher kings, in effect, creating a country. Humanists, who happened to be Jewish, establishing a new nation. Well, they were able to do in Israel, with much more freedom, what they are trying to do, the intellectuals in this country, in England, in Germany, France, and everywhere else, the world over. The fact is that in all the other countries there's an impediment. You still have a backlog of a great many laws and of people you, with their traditions and their beliefs that will not budge. But having started a country from scratch, these humanists are destroying it. And this, I believe, is the key to the situation in Israel. And I believe this is what's happening in this country and other countries at a slower rate. But it is more rapid there. Now on to another question that someone asked. 
why uh, the name Chalcedon? How was it chosen? Well, I have dealt with this, and there's a chapter on it in my study in, of uh, the foundations of social order. However, let me add that uh, the Council of Chalcedon in 451 is the foundation of Western freedom, of Western civilization. That foundation is in process of being undermined and destroyed at present. We are interested in reestablishing it. What Chalcedon did was to define the biblical doctrine of Christ as truly God and truly man, two natures in perfect union without confusion, making it a unique incarnation and making the interpenetration of the human and the divine impossible only a unique incarnation in Christ without confusion. This is important because again and again in history as well as currently, men have chosen to see the state as God walking on earth. And it was Chalcedon that provided the ammunition against this. Well, there is much more that could be said. Let me give you some facts about South Africa from the Reaper, R.E. McMaster's uh, economic report. The facts about South Africa. One, only 2.9 of all job categories are still reserved for whites. Second, 1.3 million people are members of 77 black or mixed unions recognized by the government. Third, black workers' salaries averaged increases of about 40% between 1970 and 1979. Fourth, 350,000 non-South African blacks are working in South Africa legally. Fifth, an estimated one and a half million may be working there illegally, on whose income ten million Africans outside of South Africa are dependent for their livelihood. Sixth, blacks' incomes in uh, South Africa are two to five times higher than those in other African countries. Seventh, from 1979 to 1982, the real income in a typical household of the black township of Soweto increased by 50%. Eight, black workers' percentage of total salaries compared to white's share in 1970 was 25-75%. By 1980, this gap was narrowed, narrowed to 40-60%. to 60%. Ninth, since 1970, real wages for blacks have risen 95% compared to 11% for whites. Tenth, during the 1970s, black miners' wages rose 246% in real value. Moreover, as he goes on to say, the blacks of South Africa have the highest standard of living on the continent. 
and the dream of millions of blacks in Marxist-ruled neighboring countries is to work in South African mines, fields, and factories. Fourteen countries of Southern Africa rely on South Africa for their continued economic well-being. Then this final, final item, perhaps, from the witness. According to the Japanese newspaper Ashi Shimbun, surveys by the Juntendo University's main surgery and blood transfusion laboratory found the colon cancer patients not receiving blood transfusions have a higher rate of survival than do those who had transfusions. The National Fukuoka a Central Hospital found similar results in their studies of uterine cancer patients. It appears that blood transfusions lower the body's immune system, allowing cancer to spread more easily. Shozo Murakami, president of the Japan Blood Transfusion Society, said, An American report affirms that the survival rate for breast cancer and lung cancer is reduced with blood transfusions. Unquote. Well, our time is up, and uh, we'll have to continue next time. Thank you for listening. I enjoy these sessions with you, and God bless you all.